0: I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Dr. Michael Yassa, a professor at the University of California at Irvine, where he is the director for the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. His research focuses on how the brain learns and remembers information and how learning and memory mechanisms are altered in aging and neuropsychiatric disease, especially dementia. So, Michael, Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we go into the nitty gritty of of these topics, how did you get interested in the topic of memory?
1: There's a a, a sort of an interesting story behind that. I actually didn't really think all that much about memory before I started thinking about just the brain. And I got very interested in this while I was in college. And, you know, as many other college students, I was aspiring to be a a medical doctor, and I was doing my sort of pre-medical training, and and just happened to stumble upon a couple of courses on mind and brain, and quickly realized that, that there's just so much more that we still don't know and understand about the brain compared to any other organ that we have in the body, you know, so uh, you think about the, the heart, you know, it's basically a glorified pump, you know, the kidneys are a filter. Uh, but the brain is this thing that we still have no idea how it works. And I, I was fascinated by it. So I, I just kept devouring course after course after course um, to try to understand as much as possible about how the brain works and where we can make inroads into understanding more but it wasn't until I graduated and actually decided to work in, in research full time before I, I go to graduate school that I started to think much more deeply about memory and how fundamental it is. And, um, and, and that came in a couple of different forms. One was the work that I was doing was actually a clinical in nature. So I worked in a clinical division at the Johns Hopkins Hospital where I interacted with patients with memory loss. And I, and I could see firsthand the devastation uh, that memory loss really brought about, and uh, th- the fact that folks would really lose a sense of their identity, of their personal history when you have memory loss. And, and then I started to see evidence of the importance of memory in every other brain illness that we experimented with, whether it was depression or schizophrenia or neurodevelopmental disorders. And I started to recognize how ubiquitous the nature of memory is and how critically important it is. So I decided that for my graduate training, I would um, really try to delve much deeper into memory. And I've been studying it uh, ever since. Well, I'm really glad uh, that you brought up the issue of
0: identity because uh, it's really not possible to live entirely in the present in any meaningful way. I mean, there needs to be at at least a brief past, but depending on what it is, a longer past. Like even, even understanding what you just said, even in one sentence, I have to take into account the words of the beginning of the sentence and combine them with the words in the later part of the sentence, otherwise it doesn't compute. And I don't know if you have know, people who let's say do meditation and I'm, I'm not at all, I mean, I'm very much in favor of meditation, but being in the present is not a literal thing, but you know, just this instantaneous slice of time moving forward, it, it doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, you're spot on, Stuart, I, it doesn't work that way. I think that we, uh, when we talk about being in the present, we really are talking about being in the moment. But in fact, that really does require our memory to be very, very sharply tuned. Being in the moment and, and being able to appreciate that flow of time moment to moment requires that we're able to thread our consciousness from moment to moment, which means our brain is able to keep a track record of what happens the last moment and the moment before that. So, so memory becomes very, very important in that respect. And the examples that we see in, uh, in, in the clinical literature and, and others of uh, folks who have lost the ability to thread that consciousness beyond, say, a few seconds or maybe a couple of minutes, you can see evidence of that utter devastation. So in the past cases of amnesia that have been discovered or discussed have always uh, talked about the experience of the individual as feeling like they're living in a permanent presence. They're really unable to think about past experiences. But interestingly, they're also unable to project themselves into the future. They're unable to plan effectively. They're unable to think, well, what am I gonna do tomorrow? What am I gonna do next week? Because that all stems from our ability to piece back our history and think about what we've done in the past. So uh, memory has this continuous role to kind of create this uh, consciousness that transcends time. And it's not just about being able to remember the past it is just as much about living in the present and planning for the future so so i think you're right meditation is not really putting the pause button it's really selectively attuning yourself to that moment by moment change in consciousness that is happening at the present time but absolutely that requires memory and then we
0: have the uh, the most famous memory subject of, of all time hm Uh, I guess deliberately they didn't reveal his name, but he had uh, Korsakoff syndrome and and had no ability to consolidate short-term memory into long-term memory. So I think there was a story that he was told that a family member died and he reacted very strongly. And then five minutes later, someone came in and told him his family member died and he had the experience all over again.
1: So, yeah, uh, I thank you for bringing up HM. And actually, HM is probably one of the most famous cases in all of neuropsychology um, for for a couple of reasons. One is just the sheer amount of time and knowledge that was gained by working with him. And two, the the time at which uh, he was being studied. Uh, It really led to a remarkable discovery about memory, which I'm happy to tell you more about. But just one thing to go back to, H.M. didn't have Korsakoff syndrome. There are many cases of Korsakoff's where you do have memory loss. But H.M. had a very different um, and, and kind of an interesting way by which he got the amnesia. And it had to do with suffering from epileptic seizures. Now, the seizures themselves weren't the reason for the amnesia. It was really the treatment for the seizures that caused the amnesia. So what happened was, uh, if you have uh, epileptic seizures, typically those can be controlled with pharmacological treatments that just reduce the level of brain activity. And, um, and that was attempted in his case, but uh, his seizures were pharmacologically intractable. They were not treatable with these more uh, traditional pharmacological techniques. So the, what do you do then? Because seizures can take over the entire brain, essentially killing it. So you have to figure out a way to stop it in its tracks. And uh, the approach that was taken back then, which is an approach that we still, to an extent, take today, is to go in surgically and remove the portions of the brain where the seizures are emanating from. And in his case, those seizures were localized to the hippocampus and the surrounding regions. At a time, in the 1950s, where we didn't really understand what the hippocampus did all that much. So a a surgeon by the name of William Scoville went in and lopped out those parts of his brain to stem his seizures. And by all intents and purposes, the seizures were substantially reduced. So you can say the surgery was a success, but the the unexpected result of the surgery is that he lost his ability to form any new memories. He also lost the ability to remember things that happened just a short time before the surgery. You know, past, past memories, many, many years before, memories of his childhood experiences and so on, his name, his family members, he remembered most of that. But anything that happened happened, say, in the few years leading up to the surgery, that was mostly lost. And then his ability to make any new memories was completely gone. That's sort of what we think of as the, the principal case study that we talk about when we talk about amnesia. There's certainly many other causes of amnesia. In fact, uh, one more recently identified cause has been linked to opioid abuse. So there's so many other reasons why amnesia can happen. But this is one of the hallmark types where you remove the part of the brain that's really critical for making those memories as experiences that happen to us, making them stick, making them kind of uh, uh, resistant to forgetting, resistant to change. So that was that was H.M., and he was really a seminal case uh, in, in neuropsychology, and after his passing, we came to know his full name, which was released sort of out to the world, and it was Mr. Henry Molison. And it really just a remarkable individual and his contributions historically to neuropsychology and to the science of memory are uh, really immense.
0: And I imagine he was able to appreciate that the moment he was told uh, to, you know, how congratulated he was, but then he'd forget it again. (laughs) So it's this kind of tragic aspect of his case, too. I mean, it's, it's not that he didn't have a past. He had a past that stopped growing. And that's kind of an odd thing.
1: And interestingly, uh, for cases of amnesia like this, and it kind of told us a little bit more that there are many different kinds of memory in the brain, um, and and he lost access to maybe just one type, what we think of as our long-term autobiographical memory, Um, he was still able to develop new skills. So Dr. Brenda Milner, who um, I I believe just had her 102nd or 103rd birthday recently, uh, who worked with him extensively at the time, was able to train him on a variety of different motor learning kinds of tasks and get him to get better and better on a daily basis. And he would get much, much better, but he would have no idea how he got there. So he would not have the ability to remember all of the episodes or the experiences where he interacted with her and learned this new skill, but he was constantly getting better and better at it, which is just kind of a a strange um, situation when you think about it. Why am I getting better at this thing or why am I so good at this skill? I don't remember ever doing it before, but of course, he's done it hundreds of times before.
0: Yeah. So I I think all of us have a sense of what the word memory means, but in fact, it's way more complicated than uh, is typically given credit for. And I think what you're pointing to is that there are certain kinds of memory that are not fully conscious or even mostly not conscious. And so, for instance, for instance, in sports, someone learns how to play tennis. Well, in a way, they don't really know how to do a stroke until they're not able to think about it anymore. And if they try to think about it, it'll mess up their stroke. It has to be automatic aspects of it. You know, where they place the ball is not automatic, but how they
1: stroke the ball is. You're absolutely right and it turns out that actually the majority of memory that we have in the brain tends to be of that kind. This more unconscious memory Uh, memory that has arised because of uh, either conditioning experiences or uh, motor learning. And memory, you're right, it it is very broad. It should not just be taken to um, reflect our personal histories. Really, anything that causes a lasting change in the brain, what we think of as plasticity, can be thought of as memory. Um, But it's just a different kind of memory, what we tend to call implicit or non-declarative or more sort of automatic or unconscious types of memory. Those are very, very prevalent. And it's the way by which our brain is able to adapt to the environment and, and continue to promote our survival.
0: So I would imagine that the neurological definition of memory, which is probably still in formation, is different than the everyday definition of memory that you find in a dictionary. So how would you say, what's, what's the difference?
1: So that's tricky. I think you honed in on exactly the problem. We're still constantly trying to define and redefine uh, what is included under that umbrella. And I guess the answer is it depends who you ask. So for somebody who studies uh, you know memory in humans, for example, they might be more inclined to give you a definition that uh, might be fundamentally grounded in things like recall or recollection or asking someone to report. On their memories, uh, much more so than seeing evidence of memory in their practices. For example, seeing them get better at tennis with practice, right? That's a form of memory. But um, sometimes, because it's not the form that's being investigated, it tends to be a little bit more neglected. Someone who's working on molecular mechanisms might say, uh, might talk about cellular memory or synaptic memory. Um, the ability to keep a track record of what just happened moments ago, even at the level of a single cell or a single synapse or a single receptor. So I think it, it really varies what that definition is, depending on who's doing the research, who you're talking to, and, and the case that you're trying to make. I tend to take a much more generic approach to it and, and just say that memory is a reflection of any long-lasting change that the brain undergoes based on experience. So that really captures probably 90% of, uh, of the different definitions out there.
0: Does behavior in some sense have to enter in that there's a kind of conditioning in a sense and behavior ch- is changing in response to a particular stimulus? Is that, I mean, that's a little bit simplistic, but is, is that part of what we're talking about?
1: Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's, it's a really, really good point because behavior is the way that we measure it. So one of the things that we always teach our students about is what's called the learning performance distinction. In other words, we are trying to make inferences about the brain's learning or the brain's memory. But the only access that we might have to that is by measuring performance. And it's important to recognize that performance is perhaps an indirect proxy for memory or learning, and it's not 100% accurate all the time. In other words, there may be forms of memory that are inaccessible to us because there isn't an easily conceivable performance or behavioral measure that we can assess that will tell us something has changed about the brain. And a lot of other things can lead to behavioral changes that may not be due to the memory that we're interested in, but maybe to the other forms of learning that have happened simultaneously in the brain. And there's lots of cases of this in the literature where where people have kind of confounded those two and and measured a behavior and then just made the assumption that that behavior is a direct index of memory. And that's just not true. Um, Memory is a little bit more complex because it's not directly accessible to us, right?
0: And then if you want to make it even more complicated, you could talk about cultural memory, which is uh, tra- transpersonal, you know, it's an interpersonal kind of memory. You don't, it doesn't have to reside in any one particular brain.
1: Yeah, yeah no absolutely collective memory uh, is is kind of how we think about it and um uh, there is all various forms of memory we talk about institutional memory or cultural memory or group or family memory and the interesting thing about that is that um for, for folks who study it they also understand the massive value that collective memory plays or has In our evolution as a species and our evolution as a culture and as a society, Um, it it is only through that kind of collective memory that we're able to build belief systems that we're able to um, learn from our mistakes as a society. If we do, that's optional. We don't always learn from our mistakes, right? But it is a really, really important facet of memory is that we have a collective social experience. And from an evolutionary standpoint, you can think about how important that is for a species like humans who are very social. And one of the most social things that we do with each other is share our memories tell stories to each other, share stories, you know, around the campfire with our children. Um, that's a staple for our human species. And, uh, and it's shared across many species that have that kind of uh, narrative storytelling in some fashion. But, but for humans, it is highly evolved. We tell stories to each other all the time. And that's part of how we evolve and how we uh, uh, promote our survival.
0: I'm thinking about the great fire of Alexandria in uh, in Egypt, where you were born, you know, what a a disaster that was for collective memory, not just for for ancient Egypt, but for the whole world, because that was one of the highest civilizations at the time.
1: That's right. That's right. Folks have figured this out. If you want to get rid of collective memory, this is what you do. (laughs) (laughs) You burn down the library. (laughs) that's right that's right because this is really where and of course now it's impossible with the internet and maybe that's a wonderful thing because there's so much redundancy and decentralization that um, you, you really can't do this kind of cultural erosion that used to be much more kind of a, a way of operating in the in past sort of uh, conquering times uh, but you're, you're absolutely right now of course records of that do live in people's minds but of course we also know how fallible that is so when we have records that have been written and uh, transcribed over the times that allows us to retain a somewhat more accurate record of the past but when we're telling stories without having that to refer back to um, those stories can change over time uh, we know that there's false memories and biases and all sorts of things that can intervene in fact sir. Uh, Bartlett did beautiful work on this um, and showed that, uh, uh, you know, over time, as you tell a story and have serial retellings of that story, you can completely change the story and it becomes much more culturally related, much more sort of subject to social biases. So, so the stories that we would tell each other absent that written record could actually be very different from what truly happened. Yeah, know, it's, it's like playing the game of telephone but with oneself. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I always joke and say we all have the one uncle who comes to dinner on the holidays and tells the same story over and over, but every time it's a little bit different, it's a little bit more embellished, it's a little bit more detailed. And, and you know, he, he, there's no malice in this. He's not lying at all. It's just, this is actually how he's changing his memory of it over time. And that's how the brain operates. It's not an infallible machine. It's not a photograph or a video. It's actually quite fallible.
0: It's, it's almost as if memory were in a file drawer every time you check it out it gets changed a little bit and then it gets put back so it's not you know it's not literally right, you know right. a, a perfect record and i'd like to continue now with talking about the the interplay between the cognitive aspects of the brain and the emotional aspects and i think memory is is certainly one area where there's so much interplay it's not just a cognitive process but how much salience the memory gets and how easy it is to remember and how deeply
1: it's remembered how long it's
0: remembered all has to do with with emotion doesn't it
1: for sure so emotion really does kind of color or give texture to our memories and allows us to remember what we presume is going to be much more important for our survival. Um, and, and again, you can imagine the, the evolutionary value of this, if there are things that pose a threat. Um, you know, if I uh, in- encounter a bear uh, in-, in the forest and uh, somehow manage to get away from that bear, my memory of that episode is likely going to be very vivid because I need to have that knowledge in the future to know how to avoid that bear again. So so those, those kinds of experiences that we have, now I mentioned one that's involving threat, but also things that are very positive. Everybody will remember the moment They held their firstborn child in their arms, right? Um, Those kinds of uh, salient, highly positive or highly negative experiences, have a tendency to stick a lot more uh, because they're they're sort of cueing the brain in on either what to avoid or what experiences are positive and should be sought after more. Uh, The issue is that it's a little bit tricky how our brain does this. It doesn't just put the magnifying glass on an emotional experience wholesale. It does that with parts of the experience. And to demonstrate this, this there's a, a phenomenon um, that we talk about in psychology called the weapon focus. And, and I hope you're never in this situation, uh, Stuart, but if you're ever encountering a situation where somebody's pointing a gun at you and, and you're later asked to report on that experience, you might remember a lot of details about the gun about its shape, its size, the color, uh, how it was pointed at you, all that. But what you might forget is details about the assailants, what they were wearing, um, how tall they were, their build, uh, in some cases, even their race. And, and those kinds of things obviously lead to very faulty eyewitness testimony. It's been talked about quite a bit in the eyewitness testimony literature because the highly emotional experience actually puts the magnifying glass on the most salient aspects of the experience. The things that are going to be much, much more critical to your survival. Everything else, the peripheral details actually tend to kind of disappear from memory pretty quickly and can be corrupted either by forgetting or by interference or by leading questions, all sorts of things that can happen to make it so that even though we think we have a really good recollection of that experience, we only have a good recollection of certain components of it, the rest are gone.
0: Probably not just the gun, but the trigger or the trigger finger, you know, whether the trigger finger looks itchy itchy or not.
1: That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Again, things that are really critical for your survival.
0: So earlier we we were talking about memory often being unconscious and uh, and that's true, I think, of perception as well. And one example I'm thinking of is blind sight, where someone who's blind can sometimes, depending on what the cause neurologically is of the blindness, they can actually maneuver around obstacles, but without seeing them consciously. That's sort of one of the most incredible examples of it.
1: Yeah, no, blindsight is is such an interesting clinical phenomenon, Um, and uh, I usually will show, you know, they're very poor quality videos now because they were so many decades ago, but I'll usually show one of those videos to my uh, students in my human neuropsychology course just because it's so profound to have somebody who has, for all intents and purposes, what's called cortical blindness, so they're really unable to see because the parts of the brain that are responsible for processing visual information uh, have been damaged. And, you know, you can put obstacles in the person's way and just ask them to kind of make their way down a hallway and they will walk and just carefully make their way around these obstacles without thinking anything of it. And if they're asked, you know, did you see any obstacles? Did you have a feeling there was an obstacle? They'll say, no, I was just making my way down the hallway. So it's completely <laughs> unconscious. And yet some part of their brain, some system, some circuit is still able to see just enough to allow them to kind of navigate and not fall. And again, you can think of the evolutionary value of this, having a little bit of redundancy in the brain to have this unconscious system kind of take over when the conscious very prominent system is damaged for some reason and we see the same thing with memory and amnesia too you're right the unconscious forms tend to 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 be much more sort of in play when you lose access to the much more prominent sort of traditional kind of memory system that allows you to say i remember i recall i recollect and so on
0: yeah, this reminds me of my last paper in undergraduate school it was for a course on perception, and the title of my paper was naive realism. So naive realism is the idea that the, the way we experience the world is the world, and that's naive because it's actually filtered through our perceptual systems and our brains, and and so on. And it's sort of mind-boggling, and it's 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 to think that it's not that way, but it's it's really pretty conclusive that it's not. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that, uh, you know, when we think about our percept of the world as something that is shared and common across individuals, you know, certainly there's going to be components of it that are shared. And, And if one were to talk about sort of what is an objective reality, maybe it can be assessed as a function of sort of what is shared across all of our perceptual experiences. But in reality, we construct our worlds as we go along. We are constantly building that world in our perceptual systems and it's an imperfect replica of what's actually out there. Just like our memory systems are constantly constructing records of our experiences, but they are also imperfect replicas of what's actually happening. So it ends up being the case that our brains are these incredible simulation machines they're building kind of an artificial simulation of the world around us and of the experiences that we go through to create a representation of that world that is really highly unique to us and the way that my brain represents the world could be very different than the way that yours does
0: i wanted to ask you also about uh, in terms of different kinds of memory how memory is changing in terms of you know which types of memory are becoming better and which kinds are becoming worse because of cultural and technological reasons. So for instance, I know that in my parents' generation, it was very common in school to have to memorize poetry and memory, declarative memory, recall memory was was considered highly prized as a form of, of erudition. And that's gone by the wayside, and and, it's, and what's taking its place, it seems to me, is more of a kind of recognition memory and a navigational memory to in order to go through all the menus in a computer and find your way around, and knowing where to find it. And that's true even in medicine. I think medicine, uh, there used to be much more of an emphasis on compiling an incredible array of facts, and now it's knowing where to find things, or, or another example is the taxi drivers of london used to pride themselves uh, as having a map of all of london in their heads which apparently is a very complicated city that was not originally designed for cars and now everybody has gps in their car
1: Yeah, no, so much to unpack there. So so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, You know, what has changed culturally to make memory maybe a little bit less, or memory in the traditional sense, maybe a little less relevant. And uh, your sense is absolutely right with the advent of the internet and the ability to kind of look up things. The emphasis on being able to remember and uh, kind of tell the stories or or recite poetry or, or do any of this thing from memory that has gone by the wayside and and i i don't know if that is a good thing or a bad thing i mean obviously we all kind of reminisce about the times where great orators would have this incredible record of poetry and and stories and be able to tell them uh, with great ease and certainly you know the greeks and the romans prided themselves on being able to to remember and tell stories uh and they uh, they actually would compete and have uh, methods that they developed, like the method of Loci, for example, uh, to be able to use our incredible sort of spatial navigation skills uh, in our minds to essentially remember lots and lots of uh, different things, like who's sitting around the table in exact order. Uh, Those kinds of things are just not, there's not a premium on them anymore because of the availability, of course, of the internet, of uh, search devices, of artificial intelligence, Uh, And a variety of different uh, components of that allow us to um, find that information at ease. The issue though is, as you said, it's not that memory has disappeared. It's just that different kinds of memory got co-opted for different things. So now, you know, having a good memory for, like you said, how to search, menu structure, um, where you might find certain bits of information, that's critical. The, the example that you give with the medical field is a really interesting one because even though there's still a great emphasis on um, being able to remember, it is uh, just based on experience. So physicians, when they're doing uh, you know, a, a diagnosis, they're basing this on a tremendous amount of experience. But how do you do this when you're starting out and how do you, when you have not amassed that kind of experience yet? And uh, there's two ways to think about them. One, of course, is, is by looking things up. And every medical student knows, every resident knows. You talk to the patient, you go back to your office, and you're looking that up and saying, well, you know, what was that? What does that sound like? But now we have AI. We have machine intelligence. We have different uh, technologies that have been built to kind of supplement the physician and being able to say, you know, based on this symptom profile and this cluster, or these signs, uh, you know, there's a X percent likelihood that it could be this, and 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 this is not really prime time for that technology yet. But that's what's coming. So I, I think that we have to also think of this from an evolutionary perspective. Again, what are we going forward to? Certainly, technology is not going anywhere. It's here to stay, and it's only getting more and more popular uh, in our lives with smart homes, with artificial intelligence being used in, in almost every industry. So we maybe we think about this as is this the next stage in the evolution of the human brain? It's that uh, the kind of memory that used to be much more highly specialized in the past, it's just a different kind of memory that we have to use now. And our brains will adapt to that. GPS is another great example. You know, th- those London taxi drivers, believe it or not, There was work by uh, a wonderful colleague in the UK, Eleanor McGuire, that showed that those taxi drivers uh, who all have to go through this test, I'm sure you know, where they have to kind of uh, go through what's called the knowledge and uh, ensure that they have this incredible memory of all of London's streets when you look at their brains, you can actually see evidence that their hippocampus, which we talked about before, is somewhat larger. So they're able to somehow use that machinery to a, a higher extent than everybody else. But but now you got to ask, well, what happens with GPS? What happens with everybody using their navigation system? Are we just kind of allowing our hippocampi to, to shrink into nothingness? And I don't know the answer <laughs> to that. I doubt that it's going to you know, disappear, but certainly that that level of exercising our memory Uh, There's just not a need for it as much as there was in the past.
0: Right. And this idea of the shrinkage or growing of the hippocampus is pretty interesting. And my understanding is it also affects uh, people who have depression, that uh, a serious clinical depression, a deep depression, causes the hippocampus to shrink. And my understanding of that is because if a person is that depressed, they may be actually quite withdrawn and not be learning as much. And therefore, they're hippocampus is temporarily atrophying, but it's not dying, it's just shrinking. And then once they're out of the depression, it re-expands.
1: Yeah, uh, so depression is, is another very interesting situation. And and what you're bringing up is is a really interesting chicken or the egg problem. Is it the case that the social withdrawal that typically happens with depression uh, provides fewer opportunities for learning, and as a result, you get sort of this degradation in hippocampus' integrity? Or is it the disease itself, depression itself, is causing changes at the level of the hippocampus, which then maybe makes it difficult to learn and interact and be successful in a social setting? And you know, whenever there's a chicken or the egg problem, I always joke and say, it's probably kind of a a cycle. It's a feed forward kind of mechanism, where one feeds right into the other and you get kind of get more of the same. But the kinds of changes that happen to the hippocampus, interestingly, you're absolutely spot on. It is not uh, a neurodegenerative change in the traditional sense. You're not killing off cells. It's not permanent. What ends up happening is you get a loss in synapses. And and dendrites, the dendritic trees, the projections that come off of brain cells that allow you to make those connections with other brain cells, that is what goes away. And we see evidence of this in animal models of depression that are typically these chronic stress models where you kind of uh, simulate artificial depression in animal model, and then you can uh, look at their brains and see what happened to the hippocampus, and you see evidence that synapses have uh, been lost, dendrites have been lost, but the total number of cells is still pretty stable. And we suspect that the same is true in humans, in particular because we do see this dynamic nature of change. So when somebody is depressed, and actually it depends on how long they're in an untreated depressed state. You do see that their hippocampus uh, shrinks for lack of a better term, but again, it's not because of loss of cells. It's likely because of the loss of synapses and dendrites, which do take up space. And then when they're treated, you see the hippocampus sort of return to its uh, natural size again, because you're building up synapses and dendrites once more. So it's a dynamic or somewhat more flexible um, change but the the longer that the person is in that depressed, untreated state, the longer it would take for them to bounce back with treatment. Also, in terms of their hippocampus, it's not to say that depression doesn't have any sort of permanent side effects. Of course, it is a chronic condition. Even with treatment, there's relapse. There's uh, you know all sorts of issues associated with it, and the hippocampus is only one component of what's going on in depression. But uh, but your sense is right, is that when, when you, somebody is treated, they do return largely to its natural size.
0: So here's one of my $64,000 questions. Why is it that some people have better memories than others or seem to? And to what extent is it possible to improve one's memory? And I'm talking about people who are, are neurologically intact.
1: Yeah, so in neurologically intact individuals, there's a wide, wide range. And again, it depends on the type of memory we're talking about. So let me give you a couple of examples. If we are thinking about autobiographical memory, that's an area that's near and dear to my heart, because as uh, an investigator at the University of California, Irvine, um, my dear colleague, and actually the founding father of uh, Irvine Neuroscience in 1964 is Dr. James McGaw who in 2006 first identified a syndrome called highly superior autobiographical memory, or what we call HSAM. And highly superior autobiographical memory, uh, we suspect is only in a small subset of the population, and it's this incredible ability to recall every detail of one's life, uh, typically since teenage years, and now the many individuals are in their 40s or 50s or 60s. That kind of memory kind of runs counter to everything we talked about before with memory, memory being fallible, inaccurate record of the past, and so on. Uh, because to the extent that we can tell their memory's accuracy is actually far higher than you know your average person they are neurologically intact individuals. Um, we don't think of this as a disorder in any way. It is a, a, a highly specialized ability that seems to be a little bit dissociated from the, that normal distribution curve that we see in the rest of the population. Now, that's one type of memory that we do see some who are very, very good at it. And it's, it's very hard to imagine somebody working to improve their autobiographical memory to get to their level. So you can always improve, certainly, but their level is, is sort of uncanny. I mean, it is, imagine if I just name a day out of the blue and ask you what you did on that day or to name a public event, and you would just come up with it in a matter of seconds. It really is phenomenal. Now, there's another kind of memory which you can practice and get better at. And it's the kind of memory that uh, can be honed using memory skills or uh, sort of practice mnemonic techniques. And that's a very different kind of memory from autobiographical memory, but we know this to be true because there are memory champions in the world who specialize in this, who might be able to shuffle a deck of cards, you know, 52 cards and look through them one time only, and then be able to tell you exactly the order of all 52 cards. They might even be able to do that with three or four decks stacked back to back. So, so their ability to remember, especially sequences of things, is incredible. And what they've done is mastered what the Greeks and the Romans developed centuries ago, the method of loci. They're able to tap into their hippocampus' spatial skills to use this, what's called the mind palace, to use this approach to organize their memories in time and space so that they can piece back any sequence. That's something that anyone can practice and get good at. And the best example is um, if you've ever read Joshua Foer's Moonwalking with Einstein, he um, is a journalist and uh, of maybe subpar memory or average memory is what he calls it. And he, he, he chronicles his, uh, sort of uh, journey by hanging out with memory champions, sort of living and breathing and training with them. And uh, over a short period of time, he becomes uh, well-trained as a mnemonic, as a mnemonist. And and uh, he then goes on to, to be the U.S. memory champion. Um, and yes, there are memory championships. We just, you know, they, they may not be featured on ESPN or whatever, but uh, but it's incredible because he went from, you know, sub-average or below-average memory to this highly exceptional memory.
0: So that, that implies that you don't have to be neurologically anomalous to be a memory champion. Because I remember reading years ago, uh, The Mind of, i pronounced it nemanist or mnemonist, The Mind of uh by Luria about a man who was one of these champions. and But he had a disorder because he was not able to forget. And it's almost, uh, I guess the implication is that Maybe it's when we sleep we we separate the wheat from the chaff and and remember the saline things so, and forget the less saline things so that our mind is not totally cluttered all the time. And he he was just plagued by words and images. He couldn't forget anything, or so he said.
1: You know, and and Luria's patient was a really interesting case because it wasn't just memory. He it was also a synesthete, so he had perhaps maybe three, four or five way, I don't remember exactly, synesthesia. This is patient S, Is uh, Alexander Leary talks about, patient S or Solomon Cherievsky. And he had a crossing of the senses such that he would experience things that normally you and I might experience only visually or auditorily, he would experience them in all of the senses. So, and, and examples of this are common among musicians, for example, who will tell you that a certain, you know, piano key might come with a certain color in their mind. There are colors to sounds, or there are scents to certain sounds or certain uh, letters. And uh, that kind of synesthesia can make the conscious experience much more complex much more multi-dimensional, much more sort of like the, it, the sensory experience is incredibly rich. And, and there's no way in my mind to be able to approximate that. I have no idea. And if you're not a synesthete yourself, it's really impossible to capture what that's like. But I suspect that that was a huge reason for why he had this incredible memory. But you're right, it was very troubling for him. It was He was not well adjusted. He really could not form any real relationships. Um, he, he was deeply troubled because of this kind of memory.
0: With this last uh, segment, we have, I guess, another 15, 20 minutes. I'd like to talk about memory decline, also known as, well, dementia is one of the, I guess, primary causes of that. And uh, t- t- tell us about how d- dementia affects memory. And, and does it Does the deterioration typically follow a predictable course?
1: It really depends. So dementia is a big, big umbrella term. And it does capture, uh, you know, it, it, it talks, basically dementia is referring to a type of cognitive decline that is irreversible and progressive that eventually becomes terminal. But the causes for the dementia can vary. So for example, Alzheimer's disease is one type or one cause of dementia. Um, But there are others, frontotemporal dementia, Parkinson's dementia, um, and and so on. Uh, Dementia with Lewy bodies. Those, Those are all different types of dementia, but for all intents and purposes, the most common is Alzheimer's dementia. And that one does have a pretty predictable path in that it starts with memory first. And that likely has to do with the fact that the hippocampus is a very vulnerable structure in the brain. Uh, It's highly responsive to stress, it is vulnerable to all sorts of insults to the brain. So whenever there's pathology in the brain, the hippocampus is likely one of the first places you'll see evidence of that. So it does start there with memory loss, and that typically is some of the first signs that you see. But then it progresses to become much more kind of of a global phenomenon. You might see changes in personality, changes in decision making abilities, in some cases changes in language. Certainly, the course is such that all of those abilities are deteriorating over time. And over you know a 15 to 20 year period, perhaps, you might see complete degradation or complete decline across all of those brain modalities. But memory is usually one of the first uh, to experience decline. And the kind of memory is very short term
0: memory, I would assume is, is what declines first. So for instance, where did I put my glasses? Uh, where did I go yesterday? What did I just and then when it gets even worse, what did I just say or what did you just say or, or repeating themselves uh, when it gets a little worse, saying the same story 10 minutes later, not remembering that I had told it before. So the, the very immediate in the last 10 minutes kind of memory.
1: Yeah. And it's important to kind of distinguish also the, in terms of nomenclature, how we talk about that short term memory or working memory typically is on a very, very short order. We're talking a few seconds. And that typically is spared in the context of Alzheimer's disease early on. It does deteriorate later as you start to get more frontal lobe deficits the compromised working memory or short-term memory. Anything beyond 30 seconds or so, we tend to call long-term memory, but we distinguish between recent memories and remote memories. And what we tend to see is you're absolutely spot on. recent memories are the ones that are gonna decline first and foremost. So things that might've just been said or, or even experiences over the last few months or years, The person might still recall their childhood, and they might even recall their adult children, but they may not remember that their adult children had their own children, and now they have grandchildren, right? Because that might have happened recently, just before the onset of dementia. So it is this progressive or temporally graded. Uh, Retrograde amnesia, where the recent memories are fully compromised, but remote memories are a little bit more spared, at least early on. Eventually, everything kind of declines, but uh, what starts early is the loss of recent memories. So if I could just
0: clarify by working memory, so we're talking about things like, uh, I guess the classic experiment is memorizing numbers as in telephone numbers, but it also can include things like remembering the, the, the beginning of your sentence so that I can make sense of the whole sentence. So it's very, very,
1: very brief. Exactly, very brief on the order of seconds. And the phone number example is the best one to think of. You don't have a pen and paper. I asked you to remember a phone number. You kind of recite it to yourself a few times. You're keeping it in your working memory. Then once you dial it, it's gone. It no longer lives in working memory.
0: It's almost like a working pad. Mm -hmm. have that, I think, on computers. little sticky note for the brain. And uh, I forget where I read this. I don't know if it was maybe in your lecture that the frequency of, of Alzheimer's doubles every five years after the age of 60. Yes. And by 85, it's 40%, which is really frightening.
1: Very frightening.
0: So we're talking about enormous, enormous numbers. From what I've Red, and I, I'm a prescribing psychologist, so I know a little bit about these things. It, it, it sounds like the medications for Alzheimer's are really overhyped. I mean, what we have so far is really not all that valuable. You know, I'm thinking about uh, Aricept and Namenda, particularly. Um, I, my understanding is that they maybe forestall the uh progression by six months and you have to take it at the very early stages for it to to even do that
1: you're right and of course it's important to distinguish what those medications are actually doing because they are not modifying the disease process in other words they're not slowing down the pathology in the brain what they're doing is they're sort of making up for the impact of the pathology to try to reverse some of the symptoms so uh, you know aricept for example is a cholinesterase inhibitor so it is going to reverse the impact of an enzyme that breaks down a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which we know is depleted in Alzheimer's disease. But the depletion of acetylcholine is not the reason or not the mechanism for Alzheimer's disease. It is an outcome. It's, a, it's the result of it. So you're very handicapped or hindered when you do that. You're unable to change the disease process. You're only working with the symptom side, but because the disease is progressing, eventually those cells that are producing that neurotransmitter are going to die, and there's nothing for the drug to act on. So they have very limited efficacy and only really when used early in the disease, as you said. Now the focus these days, though, because it's been you know a long time, a couple of decades since Namenda was approved, and uh, just up until recently there were no approvals in treatments for Alzheimer's disease. But the focus of the field right now is on disease-modifying therapies, on treatments that will actually reverse or slow down or halt the progression of the disease, rather than just treating the symptoms.
0: And then this harkens back to the very beginning of our interview where you talked about the, how difficult it is to understand the brain compared to other organs. And you know, here we have a disease that affects so many people. It's so expensive. It's so heartbreaking for so many people. So the motivation to come up with something is super high, but it's so difficult to come up with, a, with an understanding that really leads to a really effective drug or really effective intervention of some kind. So recently, there was a drug approved by the FDA called aducanumab against the almost unanimous advice of the advisory committee, which I found really heartbreaking. There was actually an op-ed piece in the New York Times from June 15th of this year by uh, doctors Kesselheim and and Avorn, I actually read a book of Jerry Avorn called uh, Powerful Medicines. It wasn't about the FDA, it was more about the drug reps that come to visit doctors who are really salesmen. And it was just really decrying this decision as being one of the worst ever made by the FDA. And it's really gonna, unfortunately, I think, undermine confidence in the FDA at a very bad time <laughs> to do that, either, given what's happening with the pandemic. Yeah, no kidding. What, what, what's your feeling about that? I mean, it, it's just uh, mind boggling to me.
1: Let, me. let me first say, you know, harkening back to our, the beginning of our conversation, the complexity of the brain. In addition to the complexity of the brain, you have to also appreciate the complexity of Alzheimer's disease. Um, because it is not a singular mechanism disease. It does not have a clear singular genetic link. It does not have a, a very clear singular pathway. It is likely a combination of things that are happening at the same time. So to find uh, you know a single therapy that is able to address all of the issues in Alzheimer's disease is probably an impossibility. We have to think about a multi-therapeutic approach, multiple drugs, targeting multiple things at the same time, and kind of use that cocktail once we discover what it is to be able to help patients. So the requirements that we've set on ourselves in the field is incredibly high. The bar is incredibly high. Now, let's talk about aducanumab and, and that approval. You're absolutely right. It was an approval based on, I would say, questionable clinical data because it was post hoc statistical analysis limited to a certain group. And uh, and even then, when you look just overall, the quality of the data in terms of making the convincing case to prescribe the drug, especially in the context of side effects that the drug has, which all of these drugs do have side effects, let's not forget those, makes it very difficult to see the logic for an approval. And as you said, the almost the entirety of the panel voted against the drug and uh, it still got approved. So this does a couple of things and I'm gonna try to not be doom and gloom and pessimistic and just kind of give you a more balanced view. The drug approval in and of itself for this particular drug, I think is problematic on a lot of levels. One is the level that you just mentioned is you start to lose faith in the process, in the FDA and right now, especially with what's going on with approval for COVID-19 vaccines. We really need them to be on point as much as possible. We need to have trust in that institution. Now that said, the fact that it has been so long before any approvals have happened, uh, since the MENDA was approved, has been alarming for the field, has been alarming for um, pharma companies, which, you know, we need them in this fight, right? We need them to pour their uh, incredible resources into this fight. Uh, we can't afford to do this just with government funding. It's Im- It's impossible. So we have to make sure that the path to approval is clear. And one thing that aducanumab approval has done is define an FDA regulatory path for approval it's not a great one but it is a path so in other words what that does is inspire a little bit of hope for other drug makers and other scientists and other folks who are working on their treatments out there to say look if this got approval we should not give up we should continue we should push and try to push this for approval so there is that little bit of hope because there's an approval in the absence of approvals for so long. But the problem is, I think it was done on very, very shaky premise. So in other words, my hope was that there would be an approval, but for a drug that has a much better track record in terms of the clinical data. So it's a very, very mixed bag, but I would say that probably at this point, I'm leaning towards more harm than good, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and and it's also troubling that even with such a questionable approval, it's gonna be marketed as a big breakthrough and it's gonna become a profitable drug. You know, it's, it's $56,000 a year. It's, it's not an inexpensive, you know, uh, and th- it's gonna be marketed and they're gonna be marketed not just to the, to the public, but also to doctors. And not all doctors are very conscientious about looking at the original research.
1: Now, there, there is a potential out, uh, which is phase four. So, in other words, the, the drug manufacturer is now obligated to also do phase four trials as per the FDA guidance. And if the phase four trials do not demonstrate sufficient efficacy, then it's possible that the FDA would pull this approval. So, you know, they're, they're offering this approval in an accelerated fashion because they understand the demand and the need, the very, very high level of unmet need. Um, right now in our society, but if enough clinical data based on prescribing the drug and seeing the outcomes uh, to sufficiently evaluate its efficacy over time comes to the table and there's the conclusion that there is not the efficacy there, then it stands to reason that the drug would lose its approval, the chances of that happening are are likely slim because there's so many reasons why people might improve and all of those things kind of get lumped together in analyses. But that is sort of the FDA's way of regulating the accelerated approval procedure to say we're going to grant this accelerated approval with the condition of you need to do phase four trials to really assure us of this efficacy. So before we end, I just
0: wanted to uh, make sure that we at least mentioned the concept of pseudodementia that there are at times people have what looks like dementia, especially memory problems, concentration problems, problem solving problems, but not caused by a irreversible deterioration of the brain. That it could be a drug effect. It could be a, because of depression. It could, there's a number of different things, lack of sleep. So that's something that I think uh, our listeners should be aware of.
1: Absolutely. And and you've already named some of the big, big reasons. Um, sleep disruption in the elderly is um, very prevalent. And it can actually cause memory loss, cause cognitive symptoms that look very much like early stages of dementia. But of course, uh, you know, sleep loss, to, for a variety of reasons, of course, our sleep gets worse as we get older anyway, but uh, there could be medical reasons why somebody has to have fragmented sleep, wake up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom to do things. Um, those are all reasons why somebody might have disrupted sleep, and as a result, they have something that looks very much like the early stage of dementia. Now, the good news is once the sleep deficit or the sleep disorder is treated or made up for by additional napping and so on. So so dealt with in some way, you see these symptoms resolve, which tells you it really is not dementia. Um, Depression is another one that's very, very tricky because it does in many cases result in misdiagnosis. Late life depression does not present in the same way that depression presents in young adults. In other words, it's very hard to pick up on because sometimes it comes without sadness. It's sometimes referred to as depression without sadness. It manifests more in somatic symptoms. People might feel fatigue, might feel kind of a lack of will or desire to do things. And that could be because of late-life depression, but they, it may not feel that way to them, so they never consult with a psychologist or a psychiatrist to get treatment for it, and it might get misdiagnosed for uh, early stages of Alzheimer's disease. So, so those are some of the things to look out for, certainly, in older adults, that there may be other reasons why somebody might experience memory deficits that have nothing to do with dementia and are completely and fully reversible, as you said.
0: All right. So that's, that's the hopeful scenario. That's right. For some people. Okay. Well, I think we've come to the end of our hour. So uh, Dr. Michael Yassa, professor of uh, neurobiology of learning and memory at the University of California at Irvine, uh, specializing in how the brain learns and remembers information and how learning and memory mechanisms are altered in aging and neuropsychiatric disease, especially dementia. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I have to say this interview is is going to be very memorable.
1: I hope so. I hope so. Thank you, Stuart. It was great uh, chatting with you and thank you for having me. I'm Stuart
0: Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.